0: Ukraine raises its flag following a major victory in the country's second largest city. Some experts are calling it the worst loss for Russian forces since the Kyiv retreat back in March. Also ahead, the latest in the legal fight over documents seized at Mar-a-Lago, Mar-a-Lago and the former FBI agent that Trump could be hiding even more documents elsewhere. Plus king charles takes the throne as the uk pays tribute to his mother these are live pictures from westminster hall where king charles iii will be receiving messages of condolence from members of parliament we'll have more on the funeral plans for queen elizabeth and take a look at the future of the monarchy Good morning. Welcome to Way Too Early on this Monday, September 12th. I'm John Flamir. Thanks for starting your day with us. We'll begin with the war in Ukraine, where Ukrainian forces are claiming major victories on the battlefield after recapturing large parts of territories in the eastern part of the country. Local officials say that Ukrainian troops on Saturday took back the strategic city of Izium and areas around the country's second largest city, Kharkiv which forced Russian forces into retreat. Russia initially claimed it was pulling back to regroup. However, Moscow yesterday had to acknowledge that it had lost nearly all of the northern parts of Kharkiv. Ukraine's commander-in-chief says their forces have retaken more than 1,000 square miles of land since the counteroffensive began at the beginning of the month. That's more area than Russian forces have captured in all of their operations in Ukraine since April, the early months of the war. Videos from Kharkiv yesterday showed local residents celebrating and hugging Ukrainian troops. Analysts say the fast-moving Ukrainian offensive shows that the tide of war is shifting Meanwhile, the New York Times reports that Russia's performance has prompted discontent among pro-Kremlin bloggers and influencers and staunch Vladimir Putin loyalists creating new challenges for the Russian president. Joining us now to talk about this is the Ukraine bureau chief for The Washington Post, Isabel Kershudian. Isabel, thank you so much for joining us this morning. This is simply a stunning turn of events. U.S. officials, even a week or two ago, talking about this counteroffensive, suggested the progress would probably be slow, incremental. That seems to not be the case. Give us the very latest as to what's happening and what turned the tide for the Ukrainians' favor.
1: Yeah, I think the speed of this has even caught, you know, a lot of Ukrainian officials by surprise. Uh, And I think, you know, the real key here was that they caught the Russians by surprise. The Ukrainians have been, you know, touting a counteroffensive in the south, in the Kherson region. Uh, And certainly that is in progress, but it's going a lot slower, in part because the Russians did move a lot of forces down to the south. What Russians probably didn't expect was that Ukraine was also going to make a push in the north. the same time. And that's what's led to, you know, kind of this massive retreat. And I think the key things here are that the Russians have left a lot of military equipment, tanks, uh, ammunition. I mean, things that things that the Ukrainians are really going to put to use now, as well as the flow of Western weapons that continue to come here.
0: Also stunning how, Lack of a resistance there from Russian forces that they seem to just be hightailing and running, and as you say, leaving equipment behind. Then uh, they are retaliating. There were some several attacks yesterday in Kharkiv and Donetsk. Uh, what did those lead to? And what are the concerns that now pushed back into a corner that Putin may lash out with something bigger and more dangerous?
1: Yeah, so several regions, including Kharkiv, you know, Dnipropetrovsk, Zaporizhia, they've lost power. Uh, and Zelensky put out a pretty powerful statement that, you know, it was like cold, thirst, hunger, darkness. None of that will be, you know, more dangerous to us than, you know, this offer that you've given us of brotherhood and friendship. And, you know, he put that part in quotes. Uh, so, you know, this is that was a retaliation, clearly. Um you know the Russia Today editor in chief Margarita Simonyan. You know, put out something snarky like electricity is a privilege. I think there is a concern that now, as the pressure ramps up in Moscow, especially from you know this kind of growing circle of hardliners that surround Putin, that there is going to be more of a push to kind of bigger retaliatory strikes, maybe on Kyiv itself, uh, which you know is kind of you know been a really quiet, safe space for several months here now. Uh, So, you know, there is a push like that. The Chechen, you know, kind of war leader, Ramzan Kadyrov, also criticized the Russian military and said that he might have to speak to Putin himself.
0: And we know, lastly, that that Putin had a call with French President Macron uh, over the weekend and issued some sort of ominous warnings about the nuclear power plant that has been under siege. What's the latest there in the condition of the fighting uh, at that uh, obviously very vital um, and worrisome location?
1: Yeah, so, you know, kind of a, it got a little lost amidst all the other news uh, over the weekend, but the six reactor went down to a, a cool down state, uh, which means it was basically, you know, shut down from, you know, the rest of the grid. And they say they're doing that, you know, for safety reasons um, because of the shelling that's hitting the power lines. Now, none of the strikes yesterday, you know, the loss of power affected the power plant. So that's a bit of good news, at least. But. Um, You know, obviously it's in a delicate state whenever you have a nuclear power plant, you know, in the middle of a war and lots of people are pushing for a demilitarized zone around it. uh, But I don't think that's really getting anywhere at this point.
0: All right. Well, Ukraine Bureau Chief for The Washington Post, Isabel Kurshidian, thank you so much for being with us this morning. And we'll have more on Ukraine's counteroffensive later in the show. Meanwhile, back here at home, the legal battle is escalating this morning between President, former President Donald Trump and the Department of Justice. Both sides have submitted a list of candidates to serve as a coin appointed third party or special master to examine the documents seized during the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago last month. The DOJ is suggesting two former federal district judges. Barbara Jones is a Clinton appointee and Thomas Griffith, who is a George W. Bush appointee. The Trump legal team is suggesting retired federal district court judge and Reagan appointee Raymond Deary. The other is a former deputy attorney general for the state of Florida. Paul Huck Jr. This all comes as the DOJ gave Judge Eileen Cannon until Thursday to restore the government's access to classified materials seized at the former president's Palm Beach estate. Otherwise, the DOJ says it plans to appeal to a higher court in the interest of national security. Meanwhile, on Saturday, former FBI official and frequent Trump critic Peter Stroke floated a theory on Twitter that the former president may have transferred classified documents from Florida to his other property in Bedminster, New Jersey. Stroke writes, better check Bedminster. On May 6th, the National Archives and Records Administration emails Trump to say material is missing and may be at Mar-a-Lago. On May 9th, Trump gets on a private plane from Palm Beach to Bedminster. On video, several boxes are seen loaded onto the plane. Now, May is traditionally when the former president leaves the Florida estate to New Jersey. What's unclear, though, is what he brought with him. At the same time, the chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee says a congressional briefing to get a damage assessment of the classified documents taken from Mar-a-Lago is now on hold following the judge's approval of a special master. There is some question because of the special master appointment by the judge in in Florida, whether they can brief at this point. We need clarification on that from that judge as quickly as possible, because it is essential that the intelligence committee leadership, at least, gets a briefing of the damage assessment. That was Democratic Senator Mark Warner. He, along with Intelligence Committee Vice Chair Marco Rubio, the Republican, had requested more information on the classified documents seized from Mar-a-Lago, as well as an assessment of any national security threats posed by potential mishandling of information. Meanwhile, former White House lawyer for Trump, Ty Cobb, says the Justice Department's investigation is more about January 6th than the classified documents found at
2: Mar-a-Lago. Here's some floating that theory. I think the president is in serious legal water, not so much because of the search, but because of the uh, obstructive activity he took in connection with the January 6th proceeding, I think, the, and the attempts to interfere in the ele- election count in Georgia, uh, Arizona, Pennsylvania, and perhaps Michigan.
0: What do you think the possibilities are of an indictment
3: of former President Trump?
0: I think they're very high. Cobb, who served as White House counsel during the Mueller investigation, also said that Trump's efforts to decertify the 2020 election were, quote, criminal and would merit prosecution. Still ahead here on Way Too Early, we're taking a look at some of the moments from yesterday's ceremonies that marked 21 years since the September 11th terror attacks. Plus, the United Kingdom is entering a mourning period. More live pictures here from London, and we'll talk about what's next for Britain's royal family following the death of Queen Elizabeth II. Those stories and a check on the weather when we come right back.
3: primary season is here. If you've got voting questions, we've got voting answers. Visit mbcnews.com slash plan your vote. You'll find when and how to vote in your state's primary election. Visit mbcnews.com slash plan your vote today.
4: Join MSNBC's Simone Sanders Townsend, Michael Steele, and Alicia Menendez as they team up to host The weekend.
1: We wanna get the newsmakers, the people that
3: are in the middle of what is happening.
4: It's about the conversation. A lot of Americans check out of conversations. We want to check them in.
3: Conversation, we begin, and that you
4: continue all week long. The weekend, Saturdays and Sundays at 8 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC.
0: Members of the Biden administration fanned out across the East Coast yesterday for memorial events marking 21 years since the September 11th attacks. In New York City, Vice President Kamala Harris and second gentleman Doug Emhoff paid their respects to the more than 2,600 people killed there that day and the more than 1,000 who have died in the years since being exposed to dangerous toxins after the World Trade Center collapse. About 300 miles away, just outside Shanksville, Pennsylvania, First Lady Jill Biden honored the 40 people killed when United Airlines Flight 93 crashed into a field there. The First Lady was also joined by her sister, who is a flight attendant. And here in Washington, President Biden mourned the close to 200 people killed when American Airlines Flight 77 struck the Pentagon. There, the president reflected on the way America United following the deadliest terror attack...
2: In world history. In the midst of these dark days, we dug deep, we cared for each other, and we came together. You know, we regained the light by reaching out to one another and finding something all too rare, a true sense of national unity. To me, that's the greatest lesson of September eleventh.
0: I was working as a young journalist in New York City on September 11th, 2001, and all these decades later, the day still doesn't get any easier, and the skyline still doesn't look quite right. Meanwhile, President Biden today will be in Boston, where he is expected to deliver an update on his administration's Cancer Moonshot Initiative, which aims to slash the cancer death rate by at least 50 percent over the next 25 years. The president is also expected to sign an executive order that would ensure that the United States creates cutting edge cancer detection technologies. In addition, Biden will announce the director of a new agency dedicated to biomedical innovation for all Americans. The president's remarks come on the 60th anniversary of President John F. Kennedy's moonshot address. Still ahead, we'll have more live coverage from London. Any moment now, King Charles will arrive at Westminster Hall to hear from members of Parliament. We'll bring that to you straight ahead on Way Too Early.
4: Former President Donald Trump is facing 91 indictment charges, yet he remains the Republican frontrunner. On MSNBC's podcast Prosecuting Donald Trump, veteran prosecutors Andrew Weissman and Mary McCord break down the biggest legal developments and how they could alter the election.
0: Never had a president who engaged in this kind of conduct who's running for office.
3: He is using the criminal cases for his own campaigning.
4: Search for Prosecuting Donald Trump wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Tuesday. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place every day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning in your inbox, you'll find expert analysis, video highlights of your favorite shows.
2: Running
1: for re-election is when you actually get your report card from the American people.
4: Previews from our podcasts and documentaries, as well as written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves. Understand today's news. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. The palace has
0: announced a schedule for the mourning period and funeral arrangements for Queen Elizabeth II. The Queen will travel through Scotland on a journey to her final destination of London. Yesterday, the Queen's body was transported to the Palace of Holyrood House in Edinburgh. Today, the coffin will move to St. Giles Cathedral. The royal family is expected to take part in that procession and service. The Queen's body will remain in Scotland until tomorrow, when it will be moved to Buckingham Palace. On Wednesday the Queen will be moved a final time to Westminster. She will remain there, lying in state, until the funeral next Monday. Members of the public will be allowed to see the coffin and pay their respects during that time. King Charles III made his first public address on Friday, paying tribute to his mother, the Queen, and speaking to his new role as the head of the British monarchy. Take a look.
3: I speak to you today with feelings of profound sorrow. Throughout her life, Her Majesty the Queen, my beloved mother, was an inspiration, an example to me and to all my family. And we owe her the most heartfelt debt any family could owe to their mother. Queen Elizabeth was a life well lived, a promise with destiny kept, and she is mourned most deeply in her passing, that promise of lifelong service I renew to you all today. As the Queen herself did with such unswerving devotion, I too now solemnly pledge myself throughout the remaining time God grants me to uphold the constitutional principles at the heart of our nation. And wherever you may live in the United Kingdom, or in the realms and territories across the world, and whatever may be your background or beliefs, I shall endeavor to serve you with loyalty, respect, and love as I have throughout my life.
0: In that speech, the newly minted King Charles announced that his son William will assume his titles as Duke of Cornwall and the Prince of Wales. King Charles is traveling to Westminster Hall, where both Houses of Parliament will express their condolences before the King delivers a reply. These right now are live pictures from London as we await that moment. On Wednesday, King Charles will lead the procession of the Queen's coffin on its way to Westminster. Joining us now, royal commentator Victoria Arbiter. Victoria, thank you so much for joining us this morning. The people of Britain now have several days to pay their respects to the Queen before the funeral on Monday. Much has been said in recent days, she was a presence in their lives for 70 years. So, therefore, how important is it, do you think it is, for her subjects to have one last chance to pay their respects?
5: Good morning to you. Well, yes, as you say, uh, Britons are mourning all around the country. And I think it's going to be hugely important to them to pay their respects. When the Queen Mother passed away in 2002, over 200,000 people queued for an opportunity to file past her coffin at Westminster Hall there have been estimates in the region of 750,000 expected this week over the four days in which you'll lie in state as we're at Westminster Hall uh, the members of the public will be able to file past for 24 hours uh, but officials have warned them that there are going to be very long queues very little opportunity to sit down and uh, that people can expect an incredibly long wait
0: and the White House announced yesterday that President Biden and the First Lady will travel to London to participate in the Queen's funeral on Monday. They'll head over on Saturday for that. Um, Victoria, we're going to hear from King Charles III in a little bit. And he, but he has now already officially taken over duties as the monarch uh, over the weekend. What do you anticipate, as we're looking at live pictures of him sitting there now, what do you anticipate uh, his leadership will look like?
5: Well, I certainly hope people are going to give King Charles III a chance. Uh, He's been a divisive figure over the years, partly because people are still so many decades on responding to the breakdown of his marriage to Diana, Princess of Wales. But I think as the longest serving heir apparent in British history, Charles brings to his role an enormous amount of wisdom and knowledge. He has observed his mother for so many years. He is as duty bound as she was. He's also an incredibly forward-thinking man. It was over 40 years ago that he first breached the dangers of plastic and the dangers of climate change. He has long uh, urged religious tolerance. And so I think he is going to be a unifying presence. I just hope people will give him an opportunity to prove himself before being too quick to judge. The Queen is the only monarch most Britons alive today have ever known. And yet across London, there has been an eagerness for people to come to Buckingham Palace. They've been hoping for a glimpse of King Charles as he travels between Clarence House to Buckingham Palace for his daily business. And so at the moment, certainly, there's a feeling of, of major public support, and long may that last.
0: And lastly, uh, Victoria, you know, Charles takes the throne at a time of, of uncertainty for the future of the monarchy that, you know, the queen was there for 70 years, such a presence and in many ways, sort of seemingly held it all together. Uh, but now that she has passed on, what are some of the challenges that he faces in his new role?
5: Well, of course, the Queen uh, leaves impossibly difficult shoes to fill, but I don't think he's interested in filling her shoes, per se. He wants to offer a sense of reassurance and continuity. There's been a lot of talk that this is a monarchy in peril, but I simply don't feel that as I watch members of the public come in their hundreds of thousands to Buckingham Palace, in part to pay their respect to the Queen, but also to welcome the new King. The British monarchy has survived over a thousand years. It has experienced war reformation abdication divorce death there is no reason why it won't survive the reign of king charles iii too, but it is going to be up to him to slim down the monarchy to ensure that it appeals to the british public and its sensibilities today the monarchy has an ability to adapt and evolve that's why it continues to survive to this day but he will want to ensure that modernity continues while also paying tribute and embracing the archaic customs and traditions on which it was founded.
0: And we're looking live at King Charles III there in Parliament, expected to speak soon. Victoria, stay with us. We're going to sneak in a quick break here and then return with more of our live coverage from London.
1: And and Her Majesty, the Queen Consort, well in the life.
0: Welcome back to Way Too Early. It is just before 5.30 a.m. here on the East Coast. It's obviously later than that in London, which is where we are looking right now live at the Westminster Hall. That's the speaker of the House of Commons. King Charles III is there. You can see him uh, with Camilla, the Queen Consort. Is her new title? Uh, the King is expected to address the members of Parliament there at Westminster Hall in the moments ahead. We'll have that for you. In the meantime, Royal commentator Victoria Arbiter uh, is still with us. Thank you so much for that. Give the audience a sense here as to what we're looking at. What are what are this is as, as we've been just talking about for a few days after the Queen's passing? Meticulously ten-day plan that was decades in the making. When into effect, instantly launched. Tell us what we are seeing now. What should we expect for the next few hours?
5: Well, certainly the transition from mother to son has been incredibly smooth because of those plans that have been in place for such a long time. It's been a very busy period for King Charles III. As you mentioned, he is currently at Westminster Hall, where he will soon address both houses of parliament for the very first time. He is there alongside the queen consort for speakers from both houses to express their condolences to him on the death of the king. They will also pledge allegiance to him as their new monarch. There are around 900 MPs and peers there. After the speakers have given their address, Charles will make his reply. Uh, This really is a historic moment. It's going to be the very first time that he addresses both Houses of Parliament as monarch. But also because of this modern age in which we now live, we are able to partake in this because there are cameras present, just as they were at the Accession Council meeting a few days ago when Charles was proclaimed king. Back in 1953, Winston Churchill advised the Queen that... He didn't think it a good idea to have cameras present at the coronation. She went against his wishes, believing that the British public had a right to partake in the ceremony, an ancient old ceremony. And it was the right decision. Britons went out and purchased televisions, especially for the occasion. We don't have that problem anymore. We can watch on any number of devices. But Charles has made a similar decision, wanting the British public to be able to partake in these ancient ceremonies and rites and traditions so that they really have an understanding of everything that is unfolding. From here, he's going to travel to Edinburgh, where he will lead the royal family procession to St. Giles Cathedral, where there'll be a service for the life uh, in commemoration for the life of Queen Elizabeth II at rest in the cathedral overnight so that uh, people in Scotland will have an opportunity to pay their respects. Then tomorrow Princess Anne will accompany her mother on her final flight to London. She will spend a night at Buckingham Palace before she is moved to Westminster Hall where the King and Queen are sitting right now and she will lie in state for four days so that members of the British public can file past and pay their respects before her funeral on Monday.
0: The king is expected to speak in a few moments, uh, Victoria, so I may have to jump in and cut you off if he comes to the microphone. But in the in the meantime, what do we anticipate we might hear from him in this, in this moment when he addresses Parliament? I'd assume a tribute to his mother, the late queen. But what do you think he'll outline as his vision for the future?
5: Well, yes, I think, as you say, we will likely hear him pay tribute to his mother. He will thank the peers for their expressions of condolence. Charles, as a politically neutral head of state, is required to remain politically neutral. So as he lays out his agenda, it won't be his own agenda, but it will be to uphold uh, the government minister's agenda and to pledge his allegiance as such in return to be able to uh, tell them that he will be there to execute his duties as a politically neutral head of state. There is so much ceremony involved in, in events such as this, and it really is an amazing opportunity for us to be able to have uh, a view of the proceedings as they are unfolding. And this is a historic first for him. Of course, the king is ticking off a number of firsts this week. At the age of 73, he'll be 74 in November. He comes to his position very late in life, but he is duty bound. He has promised to uh, not make a uh, Statements, I I suppose, moving forwards that err on the political. He's been accused of meddling in the past and and kind of coming a little too close to that political line. But he recognizes that he can no longer do that. He has got got to uphold the duties expected of one in, in his position. And that requires him to remain politically neutral.
0: Certainly in his previous role, he was not shy, as you say, to voice some (laughs) political opinions, at least on issues like climate change, where he has been widely credited for being a leading voice on that for quite some time. We're expecting to hear from him shortly. We're taking a look, a live look at Westminster Hall in London. The Speaker of the House of Commons appears to have just wrapped up, nodding at the Queen Consort and now bowing before the King, handing him some materials there, and I think we are just moments away, perhaps, from hearing the king speak. So let's stay with this picture right now. Victoria Arbiter, royal commentator, we deeply appreciate you being with us. Stick around if you can. Ladies and gentlemen, King Charles III.
3: My lords and members of the House of Commons, I am deeply grateful for the addresses of condolence by the House of Lords and the House of Commons, which so touchingly encompass what our late sovereign, my beloved mother, the Queen, meant to us all. As Shakespeare says of the earlier Queen Elizabeth, she was a pattern to all princes living. As I stand before you today, I cannot help but feel the weight of history which surrounds us and which reminds us of the vital parliamentary traditions to which members of both houses dedicate yourselves with such personal commitment for the betterment of us all. Parliament is the living and breathing instrument of our democracy. That your traditions are ancient, we see in the construction of this great hall, and the reminders of medieval predecessors of the office to which I have been called, and the tangible connections to my darling late mother we see all around us, from the fountain in New Palace Yard, which commemorates the late Queen's Silver Jubilee, to the sundial in Old Palace Yard for the golden jubilee, the magnificent stained-glass window before me for the diamond jubilee, and so poignantly and yet to be formally unveiled your most generous gift to Her Late Majesty to mark the unprecedented platinum jubilee which we celebrated only three months ago, with such joyful hearts. The great bell of Big Ben, one of the most powerful symbols of our nation throughout the world and housed within the Elizabeth Tower, also named for my mother's Diamond Jubilee, will mark the passage of the late Queen's progress from Buckingham Palace to this Parliament on on Wednesday. My Lords and Members of the House of Commons, we gather today in remembrance of the remarkable span of the Queen's dedicated service to her nations and peoples. While very young, Her Late Majesty, pledged herself to serve her country and her people and to maintain the precious principles of constitutional government which lie at the heart of our nation. This vow she kept with unsurpassed devotion. She set an example of selfless duty which, with God's help, and your counsels, I am resolved faithfully to follow.
1: Bodyguard. bodyguard you
0: just heard from king charles iii live in london addressing parliament let's stay with this for another moment and see next as the crowd rises to its feet live at Westminster Hall. King Charles III just addressed members of Parliament as the United Kingdom embarks in a week-long mourning period for Queen Elizabeth II, the king's deceased mother who ruled for seven decades. Victoria Arbiter, royal commentator, we are so grateful you are still with us. Thank you for being here. Uh, tell us your reactions to what we just heard from the new king.
5: Well, I think the King looked incredibly moved there as more than 900 MPs and peers stood to sing the national anthem. For seven decades, Britons have been used to singing God Save the Queen. So we're seeing a a massive change in so many respects this week. I think, once again, King Charles's speech was pitch perfect. He acknowledged the weight of history that he felt there in Westminster Hall, and he paid a fitting tribute to his mother and her seven-decade reign referencing each of the jubilees she was fortunate enough to celebrate and mark. Given he comes to his role so late in life, chances are Charles won't have an opportunity to mark a silver jubilee even, which would be 25 years on the throne. If he does, he'll be at the age of 96, of course the age his mother was when she passed away. I think at the end there, he did look incredibly moved. Um, We have to remember that He has been so consumed with constitutional duty since losing his mother, there really hasn't been an opportunity for him to grieve personally. He is well known for being a workaholic. He has been working late into the night and then starting very early days. He has an incredibly full day. Today, he now travels to Scotland where he will lead the royal family in their procession to St. Giles Cathedral, where there will be a service of thanksgiving in memory of the Queen. He will then meet the First Minister of Scotland. He'll travel to the Scottish Parliament, where he will receive uh, a message of condolence from ministers there before holding a vigil at St Giles Cathedral tonight with other members of the royal family. At the age of 73, it is a very full schedule, but one that he is determined to carry out and uphold uh, as Britain's new king.
0: And, Victoria, finally, we know this week builds towards next Monday when the Queen's funeral will be held. Leaders around the world, heads of state, including President Joe Biden, will be in attendance. Give us a brief sense as to what that will look like as the United Kingdom punctuates its period of saying goodbye to Queen Elizabeth.
5: It's going to be a a huge event and and people are saying that it's likely to be the most watched event in television history around the world, not just the UK. Remember, the Queen was head of the Commonwealth of Nations, which encompasses more than two billion citizens. It will be a somber occasion, a full state occasion in which we will see uh, all divisions of the British military Commonwealth representatives of military from around the commonwealth who will gather at westminster abbey to say a final farewell to the queen she will then travel to windsor where she will be interred at st george's chapel alongside her husband prince philip she will join him in the king George VI memorial chapel where her parents and her sister lie at rest so monday promises to be a huge day one filled with ceremony pageantry pomp Uh, Everything that you would expect from a state occasion, but one that the United Kingdom has not witnessed in many, many years. The Queen's service at Westminster Abbey will also be the first for a British monarch in many years. Traditionally, the funerals for monarchs are held at St. George's Chapel. But I think the Queen specifically chose Westminster Abbey simply because being in London, it provides an opportunity for people to be able to converge and convene and to be able to watch the proceedings much easier than they would be able to do in windsor
0: and we are looking live it- In London right now, as the royal motorcade pulls away from Westminster Hall, after we heard from King Charles III, royal commentator Victoria Arbiter, we are so grateful that you are with us this morning to guide us through what we've been watching. Thank you so very much. And still ahead here on Way Too Early, we'll keep an eye on things ahead in London, but we're also going to get expert insight on the recent gains by Ukrainian forces. I'll be joined by a former U.S. Army officer with years of experience in dealing with Russia. Way too early. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Way Too Early. The Wall Street Journal editorial board is out with a new piece titled Ukraine Takes the Offensive. The board writes in part this. Ukraine's counteroffensive against invading Russian forces is an important turn in the war, though not without peril, as Vladimir Putin calculates how to respond. In less than a week, Ukrainian forces have retaken some 3,000 square kilometers from the Russian invaders. That's more Ukrainian territory than Russia has seized since April. Ukraine's advances raised the stakes for Putin. The Russian is capable of anything. He could engage NATO forces in some fashion that he would blame on the West and use to justify a military draft. Russia's use of chemical and tactical nuclear weapons also cannot be ruled out. The prospect is horrific to contemplate, but this is the reality of a world with dictators on the march after decades of Western complacency. Ukraine's advances are encouraging, but Putin's threat to the world is far from over. Joining us now, retired Brigadier General Peter Zwack, who served as the United States defense attache to Russia and is the author of Swimming the Volga, a U.S. Army officer's experiences in pre-Putin Russia. Brigadier General Zwack, thank you so much for being with us this morning. First and briefly, give us your assessment of this counteroffensive.
2: How much of a turning point in the war could this be? Um Good morning uh, to you and your viewers. Um, it's, it's very, very uh, significant. Um, first, it shows that uh, since the dramatic um, uh, six weeks, uh, two months around the battle for Kyiv, February, March, early April, um, um, the, the uh, Ukrainians, uh, that period, uh, following period, was in this grinding defensive fight for the Donbass But within that fight, they were, while the Russians certainly uh, fixed them and created a lot of losses, they also held the Russians and were able to plan and organize a rather masterful uh, counterpunch around Kharkiv, where everybody thought... And a lot, it looked like a lot of uh, disinformation flowing from uh, Ukraine uh, through the Russians a head fake that there was going to be a major attack down at Kherson in the south. And then, as we've seen in the last 10 days, they have come um, with good intelligence, uh, good, good um, um, deception, uh, good coordination of forces have now absolutely shocked the Russians who had redeployed heavily. From uh, to Donbass and to the south, not anticipating this. This shows Ukrainian nimbleness, uh, flexibility, ability to pull forces together, determination and moxie. Um, And it's got the Russians on their back heel and it is creating problems in the Kremlin and Russia itself, as we're seeing. Yeah, that's where
0: I wanted to go with you in the moments we have left. Uh, we're hearing some voices of discontent, finally, uh, in Moscow from some previously pretty pro-Putin uh, sources. What do you make of that? How much pressure is going to be on the Kremlin?
2: Well, th- this is, um, you know, you can't. Th- the key thing happened um, and it was ugly and that was bad enough. The Russians sort of regained their footing. Putin eventually came out of this solitude. Um, but this is um, uh, another major setback in a half-year period that um, um, the, the Russians now, are, what's going on? Uh, there have now been, nobody knows the exact, 20,000, 25,000 dead, uh, 50,000, 60,000 wounded. This is beginning to blow back in Russia. They, they can't keep that firewall, that's it, that disinformation firewall, What is interesting is the loyalty of the military, the loyalty of the oligarchs around Putin. How long does it last? A last data point. What is interesting is we're moving now into the autumn of uh, 2022. It was the autumn of 2012 when both General Gerasimov, Minister Shoigu, 10 years ago, came to power. They are still in place, and I'm wondering how how that happened. This belly is on their watch. It's got to be a You a problem. We're just caps.
0: Right. Certainly significant successes for Ukrainian forces, but maybe pushing the war into a new perilous place, depending on how Putin responds. Retired Brigadier General Peter Zwack, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Up next here on Way Too Early, a federal judge throws out the former president's lawsuit against his political opponents. And coming up on Morning Joe, the latest on the DOJ investigation into Trump and the new theory about more secret documents stashed away by the former president. Plus, we'll go back to London with more live coverage as. The UK mourns the death of Queen Elizabeth. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why is this happening? evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Paget, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election.
4: We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh, yeah, that that I actually care about.
0: That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe.